Hi, family. That's right. Family is right. Upper Best Side. So what's fun is that um, I'm actually going to be back here in two weeks with the rest of downtown. We're going to come worship with you guys. We will descend. Uh, well, actually ascend. You guys have already ascended, right? So we will ascend with you uptown. Um, so we'll be back in two weeks. But I'm excited to be with you guys today. We are going to continue our series Uh, following the book that our lead pastor, Andy Andrew, just wrote, Fake or Follower. And today the conversation is going to be around misplaced worship. Good, right? So we're just, we're going to ease into it and start in Revelation. (laughs) Revelation 2. This is Jesus talking to the church in Ephesus. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work. I've seen your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but are not. You have discovered that they are liars. You have patiently suffered from me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Good morning. All right, here we go. In 1976, there was a survey that asked people to list their life goals. Fame, in that study, ranked 15th out of 16. They did, this, they did the survey again in 2007, 10 years, 11 years ago. 2007, 51% of young people reported that being famous was one of their top personal goals. This was 11 years ago. Now, full disclosure, are we close enough for me to fully disclose? Because I, uh, growing up, I would be in that 51%. It's probably higher now, especially Instagram influencers, all that stuff. It's probably much higher. But growing up, I would be a part of that 51% because you see, by the time I was 11 years old, I wanted to live in Hollywood and be in film. Now, no one ever told me, coming from, you know, West Texas, Very, very small town in West Texas. No one told me that no one actually lives in Hollywood, right? No one lives there. But uh, I was talking with a a friend of mine this week uh, about just this this idea. And and I I was pretty young, pretty, it was during, during my formative years, I had this idea of what it would be like to live this lavish, extravagant lifestyle as, as a movie star. You know, I wasn't really interested in in the craft of acting, until much later, when that, that's actually what I got my degree in. And then it was like, oh, oh, it's, it's really hard to make lavish <laughs> lifestyle out of this. But um, <laughs> uh, but all that, I was talking to a friend and telling them about my story in early history. And it reminded me that one of my dream roles in life, still is to this day, is to play the younger brother of Hugh Jackman. Now, Hugh is the older brother, but he's, uh, he's got an addiction, you know, so I'm the younger, more stable, but very codependent, younger brother, 
there's lots of drama, lots of tears, Kleenex, even for the dudes, like hit all the, all the sibling issues, all the father issues. We're going to like really, really go into it. Like I still, I, that's still a dream role. So Hugh, if you ever hear this, I'm totally down to do it. Have your people call, just call me. So that's funny. So <laughs> our basic human problem is that we are all bent towards self-centeredness. And it's a plight that is beautifully captured in David Foster Wallace's a commencement address to Kenyon College. He said, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. When we rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty, this, pretty much the same for all of us. It is our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world, as you experience, is there in front of you or behind you, to the left or the right of you. It's on your TV. It's on your screen and so on. So other people's thoughts, other people's feelings have to be communicated to you somehow. But your own are so immediate, so urgent, and so real. So the self-centeredness leads in several unfortunate directions. It leads us to selfishness, the desire to use other people as a means to get things for ourselves. It also leads to pride, the desire to see ourselves as superior to everybody else. It leads to a capacity to ignore and rationalize our own imperfections and to inflate our virtues. So as we go through life, most of us are constantly comparing and constantly finding ourselves slightly better than other people, more virtuous with better judgment, with better taste. We're constantly seeking recognition and painfully sensitive to any snub or insult to the status we believe we have earned for ourselves. David Brooks, in his book, The Road to Character, writes, some perversity in our nature leads us to put lower loves above higher loves. We all love and desire a multitude of things, friendship, family, popularity, country, money, and so on. And we all have a sense that some loves are higher or more important than other loves. And I suspect we all rank these loves in pretty much the same way. We all know that the love you feel for your children or your parents should be higher than the love you have for money. We all know the love you have for the truth should be higher than the love you have for popularity. Even in this age of relativism and pluralism, the moral hierarchy of the heart is one thing we generally share, at least most of the time. But we often put our loves out of order. If someone tells you something in confidence and then you blab it as good gossip at a dinner party, you are putting your love of popularity above your love of friendship. If you talk more at a meeting than you listen, you, are putting your, you may be putting your ardor to outshine above learning and companionship. We do it all the time. Loves that are misranked. Loves that are out of order. Idolatry. 
Idolatry is pervasive in every time and culture, no less now than yesterday, no less in Washington than Gomorrah. Indeed, it might be argued that contemporary Western humanity is more enslaved to idols than our supposedly less civilized counterparts precisely because we are presumably less ignorant about the world in which we live and because our favorite idols are the familiar realities of daily life. Religion, work, money, status, sex, patriotism, dot, dot, dot. William Stringfellow. Idols, life and love out of order. And idols can even be turning a good thing into a God. So the question is, what is absorbing your heart? What is absorbing your passion? Elise Fitzpatrick says it like this. How can I tell if I'm worshiping the blessings that I desire or God? Let me summarize in this way. If you're willing to sin to obtain your goal, or if you sin when you don't get what you want, then your desire has taken God's place and you are functioning as an idolater. Good morning. So what kind of idols are we up against? What kind of idols are there out there? What are the categories of idols? First is heart, our heart idols. We talked about this uh, at the beginning of the summer in our Gospel-Centered Life series. And so I highly recommend you going back onto the website to check that out. It's a fuller, fuller picture of what heart idolatry is. This is what the Bible talks about when it's talking about the flesh specifically, the things we deal with in ourselves, uh, whether it is a, a overwhelming sense of, of finances or control or our sexuality or power or our image. These are the things that we wrestle with in ourselves. And then there's cultural idols. It's like in this space, in this place, in this time that we find ourselves in, what seems to be celebrated? What seems to be rejected? For other people outside of New York, Wall Street is, is, is an ideology. It's, it's a lifestyle or something that you see in movies. But for us, it's right here. Broadway. You have to cross Broadway. We're on Broadway <laughs> to get here. This is very real. What, what does the culture say about us? Who's in? Who's out? How do I get along here? What's really valued here in this place that I live? And we adjust and we conform to the culture. John Tyson, a, a very well-respected, uh, well, I respect him, very well-respected pastor in the city, talks about being discipled by culture, right? That there's this thing claiming to be Lord, and it wants to make us in its image. And it cares about our entertainment. It cares about our money. It cares about our sexuality, how we use our time, what we think about. And these idols are not trying to get us to follow, follow Jesus well. Heart idols, cultural idols. And then we have our enemy, the devil, Satan, and his demonic powers, right? There is a spiritual realm with principalities at play. And they are working to distract us and distort and destroy and keep our loves and our life disordered. That's their job. But if I could be real with you for just a minute, maybe, just maybe, what we think is an attack is really just the consequences of our actions. So often, because, because to break down idols, we have to repent, right? And there, there are a couple of different types of repentance. One repentance is, oh man, I got caught. 
and, and I need to change. But the other repentance, the repentance God is looking for is like, I'm sorry I hurt you. It's a relational repentance. God, you created me to be with me and I'm sorry. I'm sorry I hurt you by worshiping something other than you. Our misplaced worship of self, fame, modern culture, jobs, relationships, emotional highs, addiction, attention, and so on above God and his unending goodness and character is a trap and ultimately a counterfeit in place of the genuine article we're actually longing for. When we understand how good and kind God is and that he never fails us, no matter the season, we stop making worship about us because we cannot help but adore the one who knows us better, the one who knows better than we know ourselves. We stop misplacing our worship and return to the one for whom we were created. Andy said that in her book. I'm sorry, I messed it up, Andy. Worship leads us back to our need for God. And so it's through worship that we allow ourselves, our self, our flesh, to be confronted and we repent. Just as the psalmist did, search my heart, O God. Make me clean. Show me what idols I have and lead me in your ways. I want to be more like you, Jesus. And I want to spend the the remainder of the time we have today perhaps uh, putting up a different framework, a different way of thinking about worship, a, a theology of worship, if you will. Because if you follow three Christians on Instagram, you've seen that worship is a lifestyle, written out in cursive, on some pretty flowers. You know, you take your worship with you wherever you go. We've all seen that. Or our, our debit card transactions show us who we worship. Oh, yeah, I see that one. Where your treasure lies, there your heart is also. Oh, yeah, I didn't see that one. But what should we be looking for in the practice of worship? When we're going about the dailiness of our lives, when, when we show up here for Sundays, what is, it, what is it supposed to look like? What are we supposed to look like? How can we constantly redirect our attention back onto the creator and not the things that he's created? A theology of worship. Eight foundational principles um, that I found in this thing called the Worship Source Book by John D. Wivlet. I hope that's how you say it. Uh, number one, worship should be biblical. The Bible is the source of our knowledge of God and of the world's redemption in Christ. Worship should focus its primary attention where the Bible does, on the person and work of Jesus Christ as the redeemer of all creation and the founder and bringer of the kingdom of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. Worship is biblical. Worship should also be dialogic. In worship, God speaks and God listens. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God challenges us, comforts us, and awakens us. And by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, we listen and then respond with praise and confession, petition, testimony, and dedication. 
Scripture constantly depicts God is initiating and participating in ongoing relationships with people. A healthy life with God maintains a balance of attentive listening and honest speech. So does healthy worship. This is why our words matter in worship. They are used by God to speak to us and they carry our praise and prayer to God. Side note, men, I know somebody has probably told you growing up that you can't sing. Or you think to yourself, you can't, like, I can't sing. I can't, I'm, so I'm not going to do this. So we stand there. And although you might be engaged in worship, what, what does this say about worshiping the creator of the universe? And so, do like me. Come stand as close to the speaker as you can get, because then you're not going to be able to hear yourself or anybody else. My voice still breaks. Puberty was 20 years ago. But what would it look like? So we're going to have an opportunity to to worship again here at the end after we take communion together. It's going to be really beautiful. But I will say, if you've never sung, men or women, because we, we... we put so much on ourselves. Like I don't, somebody from you, maybe you've been five, six, seven, or eight, it's like you shouldn't sing. And so you haven't since. But if, if, if worship is dialogic, then God is waiting to hear the words you're saying. So even if you, if you can't sing, even if you can't carry a tune, speak the words, speak the words that we're going to sing, because the most important thing is that you hear yourself. Something happens in you when you hear the words you're saying. Something happens. You start rehearsing the promises of God to you. That's my next point, but I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> but you have to say it out loud. Say it out loud. Okay, so can we all just, we're all going to do it together. It doesn't matter what it sounds like. It's going to be beautiful to God, and it's actually going to do something for us as we hear what we're saying about God. Okay, we're going to do it. We'll all do it together. You can close your eyes. No one's going to look at you. All right? It's not about you. It's not about you. Worship should be covenantal. In worship, God's gracious and new covenant with us in Christ is renewed, affirmed, and sealed. The relationship that God welcomes us into is not a contractual relationship of obligations, but a promise-based covenantal relationship of self-giving love, meaning he's the source. Worship rehearses God's promises, like I just talked about, to us and allows for us to recommit ourselves to this covenantal relationship every time. Now, we are the only ones recommitting to this covenant. God stays committed, right? Worship is for us to recommit to the promises. One question to ask, and I thought this was brilliant. One question to ask of any worship service is whether it has enabled us to speak to God as faithful and committed covenant partners. Worship should be covenantal. Worship should be a Trinitarian. In worship, we address the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, the God of holiness, love, beauty, and power. God is the one who graciously invites our worship and then hears our response. God is the one who perfects and mediates our prayers and petitions. God is also the one who helps us comprehend what we hear and prompts us to respond. Lord, help me. What what are you saying? 
And then in worship, we are drawn into relationship with God, the Father, through God, the Son, and by God, the Holy Spirit. Worship is an arena in which the triune God is active in drawing us closer using tangible physical things like water, bread, wine, or juice here. Melodies, rhythms, harmonies, gestures, smiles, and handshakes to nurture and challenge us. In worship, we focus our attention on this self-giving God. This God-centered focus also keeps us from the temptation to worship, worship itself. Number five, Christian worship should be communal. And we're going to sit here for a little bit. The gospel of Christ draws us into communal life with other people. Worship is one setting in which we see the church in action and we attempt to demonstrate and deepen the unity and holiness and the witness of the church. Worship is a first person plural activity. We, we worship. It is extremely significant in worship that otherwise remarkably different people nevertheless offer praise together, pray together, listen together and make promises together. In Luke 14, it says, Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I have just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The servant replied, sir, what you've ordered has been done. There's still room for more. So his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will even get the smallest taste of my banquet. Now, in her book, The Next Worship, Sandra Van Olstop showed me something about this passage that passage that completely opened my eyes to it in a new way. When the master says to his servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready, This is not the initial invitation. Back then, banquets took, parties took a long time to prepare, right? They lasted a long time, a week, maybe two weeks. There was a lot of preparation. So all of these people had already been invited. They had plenty of time to decline respectfully. The host had already sent out the invitation, but perhaps then this is not a story about people who didn't come to a party because they had other things to take care of because they were busy. Context shows us that they had plenty of time. Maybe these seemingly worthy guests found out that the host had already invited the entire village, regardless of their social standing, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their background, and because of that, made excuses not to come and eat at the same table. The nature of the master was clear to the guests. His invitation was for those with means, and those who were marginalized. Everyone was invited to this banquet. 
His nature was also clear to his servant. When the host asked him to invite those on the outside, the servant responded, it's already done. We already did that. There was no first guest list and then second guest list and then third guest list. The initial, the best, the first invitation to the banquet was for everyone. Everyone. The picture of the table that Jesus sets for us is one of solidarity and mutuality, regardless and despite our remarkable differences. John 13, 35, for when you demonstrate the same love I have for you by loving one another, everyone will know that you're my true disciples. We are to live in this kingdom, in God's kingdom, in such a way that it provokes questions that only the gospel can answer. Nobody wants to hear the good news about Jesus. But when we live in Jesus' ways, people will ask, what is that? What is that? Worship should be communal. Worship should also be hospitable, caring, and welcoming. Worship must never be self-centered. In worship, we pray for the world and offer hospitality to all who live in fear, despair, and loneliness. Public worship sends us out for worshipful lives of service and witness. Worship not only comforts us with the promises of the gospel, but also disturbs us in the best sense. As we realize the significance of fear and brokenness in our world and the world's desperate need for a savior. Worship stokes the gratitude of our hearts and leads that leads naturally to serving the needs of a broken world. Worship should also be in, but not of the world. Worship reflects the culture out of which it is offered. Patterns of speech, styles of dress, senses of time, rhythms and harmonies of music, and styles of visual symbols vary widely depending on cultural context. At the same time, worship must not be enslaved to culture, even church culture. Hear what I'm saying? It must remain prophetic, changing, challenging any dimension of local culture that is at odds with the gospel of Christ. Christian worship should be a generous and excellent outpouring of ourselves before God. Worship should not be stingy. I love that. Worship should not be stingy. Like the perfume that anointed Jesus's feet, our worship should be a lavish outpouring of our love and praise to the God who has created and redeemed us. Worship calls for our best offerings. When we practice music, when we prepare words to speak, when we set aside gifts of money and time to offer and ensure that we are rested and ready to give our undivided attention. My, my, my. We are practicing the kind of excellence worthy of our great and gracious God. That's why he talks about in Revelation, like you've you've done all these things and you haven't quit. But are you rested? Are you ready to give me your undivided attention? What's your first love? What's your first love? As the band comes back up, I'll end with this from Philip Yancey. Church church exists primarily not to provide entertainment or to encourage vulnerability or to build self-esteem or to build friendships, but to worship God. If it fails that, it fails. 
I have learned the ministers, the music, the sacraments, and the other trappings of worship are mere promptings to support the ultimate goal of getting worshipers in touch with God. And so at this moment, as, as the team comes to, to serve us communion, we're going to return to the table. The invitation for all people, everyone to gather at the table in a symbolic communion. And communion, the Eucharist, is a focal point of worship. Hospitable, caring, welcoming, communal. It's a picture of us coming together and sharing in remembrance of what Jesus did in his life and in his death. Sharing a meal and remembering his body and his blood. This isn't something we just do on the second Sunday of every month. This is worship. This is us together worshiping. You see, we return to Jesus over and over and over in communion. Communion is not, and I would even say worship, is not about the falling or the coming of the presence. He's here. He is here. In worship, God doesn't show up. We show up to God. He, we ask him, God, I want to be more of aware of your presence. It's about awareness. His presence is already here. He's everywhere. Everywhere we go, God is there. Because he says, I am with you. So it's not about inviting the presence. It's about becoming aware of the presence. And so we hear. And God, we inv- invite you to make us more aware of your presence. Help us see. Help us experience your presence in this moment. As we share. As we receive communion together.